You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. Thanks, worship team, again, for for leading us into the presence of the Lord. Uh, My name is Keith. Uh, I am a a, a broken person who is finding wholeness in Jesus. Uh, And if you're new or visiting here, maybe this is the first time you've been in a church, uh, we want you to know that we are a room full of broken people. We don't have it all together. We don't have all the answers. But we have had this encounter with a God who took on flesh in the person of Jesus, and he loves broken people. (laughs) But here's the thing, he doesn't leave us in our brokenness. He takes our sin and our shame upon himself. And through the cross, he's done something radical. It's like he's taken all of these broken pieces, and and in some mysterious way that only God can do, he's he's made way for our wholeness. for us to be forgiven, for us to to have that spark of life returned to us as we put our faith in this one called Jesus and as we follow him. It's why we're here. It's why we sing these songs. It's what this is all about. It's what gets a room full of people who kind of don't look the same or talk the same or even think the same or even believe all the same things. (laughs) But he makes us one. We are one because we are in Christ. And we're delighted that you're, you're here uh, this morning. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be back. I was away last weekend, uh, was able to take some time away with my family. And just heads up, that was, a, that was a veteran pastor move, okay? And I'll tell you why. It was daylight savings last week. <laughs> all right? So, yeah, you know. So blessings to all of you who are here uh, on that weekend. It's one of the hardest ones to get to church. So bless you. The Lord uh, loves you more than everyone else. No, that is not how it works, okay? Uh, We know that's not how it works. Hey, I want to jump right into our parable this morning in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. We've been working through the parables that Jesus tells in Luke's gospel. And we come to uh, a parable that Jesus tells that, that doesn't really get an awful lot of attention. Or maybe as I read the parable, you'll recognize the parable, but you'll be left scratching your head by what it says before the parable, uh, because this one uh, is an interesting one. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. You can turn there with me in your Bibles or uh, in your device. You can, you can uh, tune in there. Luke 13, 1 to 9, hear the word of the Lord. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, 
For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, Jesus. You have something to say to us because you, you always do. And, and, and we recognize, Jesus, your words bring life. And so, Jesus, we know that we want to enter into a space this morning where we take responsibility for our part in what is about to take place. We need to open the door of our heart to receive your word afresh. So, Jesus, speak through your word, through your spirit. Your church is listening. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, one of the reasons that this parable doesn't get an awful lot of attention is because of what becomes, uh, what what is spoken about before the parable. It's, It's how it begins. Because it's difficult to work out exactly what prompts Jesus to tell the parable about a figless fig tree. We're we're left scratching our heads a bit. Maybe you you were as I read. Verse 1 kicks it off, right? It says, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. I mean, this is strange, isn't it? We know from going back uh, into uh, chapter 12 that there was this large group of people that were following Jesus. They were hanging on every word. And, 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 And we're told here that some group within this crowd, they raise this issue to Jesus. And it appears that, that these people in the crowd, they wanted to talk about current events. They wanted to talk about something that, that they were reading in the news headlines of the day, so to speak. Because one of the news headlines would have said this, Pilate mixes blood of Galileans with their sacrifices. It sounds a little bit like clickbait, doesn't it? <laughs> the headline that you have to click on, but, but this is what the news would have read like. You see, Pilate was the Roman governor of the province of Judea, the area in which uh, kind of covered the span of where Jesus lived and ministered. Uh, Pilate was the governor of this province, which meant that Pilate was in charge of maintaining order. He was in charge of maintaining both the peace and the power of the Roman Empire in a region that was filled with Jewish worshipers. It was his, his role to keep the peace and power of Rome. And now Pilate, which is not abnormal for kind of Roman governors, he would often keep the peace and the power through fear and force. It's kind of how it worked from time to time. He'd use fear and force to keep people in line. And now, historians don't have all the details about this particular event. But we can gather from the historical sources that one day there was a group of Galileans who were worshiping in the temple, and that Pilate had them brutally killed. That that as they worshiped, they were executed. And quite literally, their own blood was mixed with the blood of the sacrifice that they were making to the Lord. It's not a nice story. If we were to read this story in the news today, it would contain words like terror and 
massacre, and tragedy. And so some of the people who are following Jesus, they bring up this news headline to Jesus to see what he has to say about it. And now, one of the reasons that this passage is so hard to pin down is, is we don't fully understand or know, because the text doesn't tell us why this issue arose for the people in the crowd that day. We don't know their motivation for, for bringing it to Jesus' attention. And we kind of need to know a bit of that fact in order to really understand what is happening with this parable that follows. And so there, there are typically three options in understanding why, why this massacre, why, why this tragedy is brought to Jesus' attention. First, some have suggested that, that this group is actually trying to trap Jesus into saying something that will get him into trouble with the authorities, right? It's a little bit like the scene, if you remember, when Jesus was asked whether they should pay taxes to Caesar. You remember this? Right? It, was, it was asked by the religious leaders as a trap. Because if Jesus says, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, it would mean that he's selling out his, uh, the people of God, that he's siding with Rome. But if he says, no, we don't pay taxes to Caesar, then he, he, he's siding uh, with, uh, with the people of God, and he's seen as uh, treasonous against the Roman emperor. So it was a trap. And so some think that this news story being brought up is a trap to get Jesus either to side politically with Pilate and Rome or with the Galileans, God, the people of God. And so this is one possibility. Others think the headline comes up because these people have read this in the news and they have an honest question about where is God in the midst of this suffering? Where is God in tragedies like this? Where is he when, when, when there's senseless suffering? This is one of the reasons it's presented why this comes up. And this could be the case. But I have to say at this point that I actually don't think that this is the best option at all for understanding why it comes to the surface. It's the obvious question that we often have. Maybe as I read it, it's the obvious question that you have. How could a good God allow suffering? And there's an answer to that question. The frustrating thing is Jesus doesn't give it to us here. And so maybe you need to come back another week and we can talk about that. Um, because Jesus does have so much to say about our suffering. And there's hope that God has, has set apart this program through Christ to make all things whole again. To restore what's been lost. But that's Maybe a story for another time. But that's one of the reasons people think this is arising. The third option is that this news headline comes up because Jesus has just been talking about judgment. In chapter 12, in, in, in what precedes the parable, he's been talking about judgment. And the thinking is that all this talk about judgment brings to people's mind this recent tragedy. And some of them begin to wonder, maybe the Galilean tragedy was because of God's judgment. Maybe these were, were sinners who, who were simply getting what they deserved. And while we can't be certain, because it doesn't tell us in the text, it seems to me that the third option makes the most sense. It makes the most sense in light of what Jesus is about to say, and we'll, we'll get there. There are people in the crowd who are, who are trying to wrap their head around this, this tragedy that's taken place, this current event of their day, and they're wondering, is this tragedy something God has orchestrated? 
in order to, to mete out his own judgment in the world? Did these Galileans perish on account of their own sin? Did they simply get what they deserved? We sometimes use that logic. We don't, we don't always recognize it in ourselves, but, but we live with this logic. It's the idea that, that bad people are deserving of bad outcomes. While good people, and usually the good person is us, <laughs> deserve good outcomes. Right? It's the same logic. It's the logic that says, if I do right, if, if I'm good, God will bless me. He must, because he blesses those who are good and faithful. Or the other side of the logic, it says, if they do wrong, then God should certainly punish them. Right? Do, do you ever think that way? Or if you look at some of the, the tragedies that, that some people are experiencing in life, do you ever question their choices? <laughs> Maybe it's their own fault. Maybe it's something that they have done or not done. We use this logic sometimes. And the question here in the text for, the, for people in the crowd was, Jesus, did these Galileans simply get what they deserved? Verse 2, Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. I mean, that's a relief, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus says in, in, emphatically, I tell you, no. The tragedy isn't God's judgment for sin. That, that's not how God works their suffering uh, was not on account of their wrongdoing. And then Jesus goes on, and he actually brings up another current event. It shows us that Jesus read the news of the day, right? Verse 3, listen. Jesus continues saying, Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. Jesus brings up another current event, a tragedy, when this tower falls on people and they're killed. And he says, I tell you, it wasn't their sin that caused this tragedy. Jesus stresses the point. Neither of these two tragedies are some form of divine punishment for wrongdoing. That's not how God works. But then, Jesus drops the line that, that, that everyone would have been sort of stopped dead in their tracks with. He doesn't say it once, he says it twice. Once in verse 2 and once in verse 3, he says, No, these people didn't suffer punishment for sin. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. What? <laughs> Do you feel it? Unless we repent, we too will, will perish? I mean, Jesus, what are you getting at? This is what we shouldn't miss, church. The tragedies of your life, they aren't God punishing you for sin. But every single one of them is a reminder of our desperate need for God's rescue. Every tragedy in our world is, is a reminder of, of how broken our world is. 
It's a reminder of how fragile our life is. It's a reminder of our perishable nature and the need for a God who actually can rescue us to something that is imperishable. And Jesus seems to be saying this at least. He seems to be saying that, that, that the tragedies in life, they, they aren't God's punishment for sin, but they are a reminder that, that we need God, that we need his rescue, that, that, that we need the life that he has because it's so much more than, than the finiteness of the life that we all currently live. Jesus is saying at least that, but I think he's saying much more. And I want to help you hear that much more this morning, kind of in our own context. And so, if you will, I invite you to imagine this scene in Luke chapter 13 playing out in your own life. So, if you can imagine uh, this scene playing out in your life today, you're, you're in a crowd, maybe something like this or, or, or a different crowd following Jesus in the streets, and you're hanging on every word that he says. You're hanging on every word that he says because... Whenever Jesus speaks, dead things come to life. Whenever Jesus speaks, it's like light is shining in the darkness. And so you're hanging on his words because you know he has the words of life. And then in the midst of the crowd, as you're, as you're listening to Jesus, you hear someone else speaking up, and they're reciting some of the headlines. They talk about a church in the Ukraine that's been bombed, worshipers being killed. Or they speak about two good officers in Edmonton who are killed in the line of duty, just doing their job. And then Jesus responds and he says, don't think that those tragedies are because of their own sin. And we say, Jesus, amen, we know it's not true. But then Jesus looks up from the headlines and he looks you straight in the eye and he says, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. What? What's going on here? I mean, it's striking. And, and, and I suspect that, that for most of the people who, who were there that day or, or maybe most of the people who are here today, our initial reaction is, is, is something along the lines of, but Jesus, what have we done that we need to repent from? What have we done that, that's wrong? And now, don't get me wrong, I'm sure there were some that day and, and maybe uh, some today who, who, who wouldn't respond that way. You know, there, there were some that day who knew full well that they were living out of sync with God's goodness. I suspect there was probably a man in the crowd who was having an affair. Or a woman in the crowd who was stealing from her employer. Or a business partners who, who were exploiting their workers for profits. I suspect that, that, that some of the people there would have heard Jesus' call to repentance pointed squarely at the things going on in their life. Right? And maybe for some of you here today, too, you, you need to hear Jesus' words that way. Unless you turn around, you too will perish because that's what sin does. It destroys. It's a path of destruction. Right? In, the, in the life of, of the man who, who is unfaithful to his wife, it, it destroys her destroys their family. It destroys the image of God in all of them. Sin, it just, it destroys. 
Unless you repent too, you will perish because that's what sin does. It destroys. It destroys us. It destroys the people around us. And I want to say, if Jesus is speaking this word directly to you today, don't ignore it. Turn around. Turn to him. It's the difference between being a broken person and being made whole in Christ. We weren't made to live as broken people. We were made to live in wholeness. And only Jesus can lead us to that. Self-help book can't. Even your friends' opinions can't. <laughs> their support, their direction. No other religious leader can. Only the Son of God, who took the brokenness of the world upon himself and did something to undo its curse. And so, if you hear these words directly, then turn around, turn to him. But I want to suggest to you today that there were many in the crowd there that day, as there are probably many in our crowd here today, who weren't willfully choosing disobedience to God and his ways, right? right? I think I'm, I'm, I'm safe in saying that. Not, not everybody walking around is a murderer or, a, you know, uh, I, I hope not. Of course, we know that, that no one is without sin. No one. We all fall short of God's glory. But the crowd, I, I suspect, wasn't and isn't chock-a-block full of wayward scoundrels and schemers. And so when Jesus looks at us and them in the eyes and says, unless you repent, you too will perish, they respond by saying, repent? Repent from what, Jesus? What have we done that requires repentance? You tracking with me here? No, like really, are you tracking with me here? Yes, yes. I could have said, and can I get an amen, but I'm not ready for that. I'll maybe do that a little later. Look, church, I think Jesus is telling both the bad and the good, the honest and the dishonest. The scoundrels and the saints, he's telling them all to repent, all of them. Why? Why would good, honest saints need to repent? That's the question. It's because repentance isn't simply about the bad things we've done. It's about the good things we haven't. The kingdom that Jesus invites us into, it confronts both our sinful actions, but also our inaction. The things we've done and the things we've left undone. These are, are like two sides of, of the same coin, right? On one side are all the things that we have done that are out of sync with God and his kingdom. But on the other side are all the things that, that we failed to do that are in sync with God's kingdom. And so Jesus says to those who, who, who uh, have these uh, sinful actions and also to those who have inaction, he says, repent, lest you perish. Now, the word that Jesus uses here is metanoia. That's the Greek word he uses, the word for repentance. It's metanoia. 
And we're most familiar with kind of this one side of the metanoia coin, right? The side that deals with the things that we've done wrong. We're, we're more familiar with that side of the coin, right? The side where uh, the, people know that they've done something wrong, right? The cheating, the lying, the gossiping, the, the cheering for Liverpool Football Club, <laughs> right? Things like that, Rick Gilbertson. They're the obvious ones. But there's another side of the coin, the side that deals with the things that we've failed to do, our inactions. The word for repentance, this metanoia, it's a compound word that begins with the word, uh, uh, with the word meta, right? And I need to tell you, this is a buzzword today. Mark Zuckerberg did not invent this word, meta, <laughs> It's, it's a word that, that means comprehensive or all-encompassing or, or beyond. And so we have metaphysics, right? Metaphysics studies the things that go beyond our current understanding. They're, they're like at the edge. They're beyond the, the limit of our understanding. We have metaphysics. We also speak about meta-narratives, and these are stories that kind of tell the overarching story of reality, the big story. And so metanoia is something that is all-encompassing and comprehensive, something that covers the whole story, both sides of the coin. Metanoia doesn't simply address our past sinful actions. It covers our present inaction too. And it has the view or the goal of a flourishing future. Repentance deals with our past actions, our present inaction, with the view of a flourishing future. Gabby Viesca is a preacher in Portland, Oregon. And she said that metanoia repentance speaks about a complete transformation of who we are into the image of who God is. Oh, I think she's nailed it. True repentance is this, this work that God does in us to transform who we are into the image of who he is. Which is why in the absence of metanoia, there is only perishing. Because without repentance, we remain in our own sinful image. <laughs> We're forever marked by the perishable. And metanoia, Honest repentance is about this complete transformation of all that we are into the image of all that God is. And in order for this total transformation to occur, Jesus must attend to both the wrong we've done and the things that we aren't yet doing. He calls for a repentance of our actions and a repentance of our inactions. That's why he tells the parable of the fig tree. It's all about the second side of the coin. It's about a fig tree that isn't doing what, what it was designed to do, to bear fruit. Verses 6 and 7. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. 
So he said to the man who, who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Now, fig trees, they're prolific producers of fruit. Right? A fig tree typically will have fruit on it for 10 months of the year. Okay? It, there are three harvests of, of figs that you can get from a fig tree. Uh, it always has fruit on it, except for in May or um, uh, March and April, apparently, in, in, uh, uh, in Israel. It, it always has fruit on it. They're prolific producers of fruit. But this fig tree has none. It hasn't had fruit for three full years. You see what Jesus is doing with his parable? Do you hear what he's saying to us, the church? Living into God's kingdom isn't simply about being forgiven from our past sins, though it is. It's about actively and effectively doing something with these forgiven lives that actually does something to bear the fruit of God's glory in the world. It's about living a life that produces kingdom fruit. We aren't simply transformed into God's image by being forgiven. We actually need to roll up our sleeves and follow the one who forgives us. Follow the way of Jesus. It's what he's calling his church to. Because if we don't, if we don't, we're, we're like a barren fig tree that, that simply consumes nutrients from the ground but produces no fruit. I mean, it's a striking line in, in the parable. Cut it down. Why should it use the soil? It's just leaching nutrients and not producing fruit. So church, when you think of your Christian life, would you describe yourself as a consumer of nutrients or a producer of fruit? In your Christian faith, are you a consumer or a producer? Do you take more than you give? Do you attend more than you serve? Do you receive more than you bless? I wonder if your experience of following Jesus, like if you think about this, this whole life of yourself following Jesus, is it defined by moments of simply receiving grace in a worship setting or, or, or through a, a message or, or as you go on a, a hike with worship music on? Is, is this the context of the majority of your Christian experience? Or when you follow Jesus, are you actually giving something of yourself? Your time your energy, your resources? Are, are you giving to build for God's kingdom in the world? It's the question, are, are you a consumer or a producer? This is the question, not that the, the pastor at the church is asking. <laughs> it's the question that Jesus is asking in this parable. Are we consumers or are we producers? Fruit trees... Um, they're spoken about quite a lot in the Bible. 
quite a lot. Even in the Old Testament, there's, there's lots of information about fruit trees, fig trees, uh, you, you, you name it. In Leviticus 19, I want to draw your attention to this. The Israelites, in, in, in the Old Testament law, they're instructed that when they plant a fig tree, they're, they're actually given specific instructions on what to do with the fig tree. So they're supposed to plant a fig tree, and for the first three years, they're, they're not allowed to eat the fruit. The fruit is forbidden. It was not to be eaten. Kind of strange. We probably could go into why, but we're not going to. But then I want you to hear what the Israelites were supposed to do next after three years. This is in Levitic, Leviticus 19. It says, in the fourth year, all the tree's fruit will be holy and an offering of praise to the Lord. And we'll get to the next verse in just a minute. But, but first, the first fruits of the tree they were to be an offering to the Lord in the fourth year. This, I think, this passage it directs our attention to the kind of fruit uh, that God wants us to grow with our lives. It gives us some direction. If we ask, okay, Jesus, you want us to grow fruit, what does that look like? What does that mean? I think we get some direction in Leviticus 19. We're told about the first fruits. First, there is the fruit that serves the Lord. The fruit that, that, that has produced something for God's glory. The fruit that serves God in his church. Fruit that is born by using our time and our treasure and our talents to serve God among the people of God. And now, I realize that, that I'm, the, I'm not saying this as a pastor because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get people to volunteer in our youth ministry. Chris would love that. Can I get an amen, Chris? Amen. I knew I'd get one. Um, right? That's not the point. Well, it is the point, but it's not the point that I'm trying to make. <laughs> I'm not saying this because I'm being a self-serving pastor trying to recruit people to do things in the church. I'm saying this because that's the life that God wants for you. That he doesn't intend for you to be a consumer of worship services. To, but to be a producer of the fruit of his kingdom come in the church, particularly to the next generation. Oh, we need to wrap our hearts around the next generation. We need to pour into the next generation because they're not the next generation. <laughs> they're people now. Jesus wants this life for us where, where, where we're using the things uh, that we have, the gifts he's given us, the resources that we've given us to serve in his church at the peop as the people of God. And so let me ask again, in here among us, are you a consumer or a producer? A few weeks ago, uh, a group uh, of people uh, from our, 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 our family of church here, they completed the Kairos course, and you've heard quite a bit about this uh, over the last number of weeks. This was a pretty intense, I have to say, there was a lot of work. It was an intense discipleship class focused on missions. And I was chatting with a man who, who took the class uh, this last week, and he was explaining how all this work in the course actually awoke something in him. And he, he realized that some things in his life with Jesus had been missing over these last few years of this kind of strange pandemic break. Like this past activity, this, this past involvement had been lulled to sleep. 
A work of, of being God's person had, had been put on hold for a time. And the reality is that that has happened for, for many of us. I'd say most of us. And so after the class, he, he, he kind of felt this stirring to, to lean in, to do something. And so, so after the class, he called up his friend. And he said, you know what? Why don't we just take a step together? And why don't we go to the men's group this evening? Let's grow in the Lord. The man wants to be a producer, not a consumer. God desires that we grow fruit and we give our first fruits to him. But I want you to notice then what happens next in Leviticus. It says, the fourth year's fruit is an offering to the Lord, but the fifth year's fruit is for eating. It's a blessing. And now, I want to be clear here. It's not simply for eating for ourselves. <laughs> The fifth year fruit is a blessing for others. Zechariah 3.10 makes it clear. Zechariah 3.10 looks forward to this day when, when the fruit that we produce will bless our neighbors, right? This is what God says there. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree. It's the idea that the tree of our Christian life is meant to bless other people. People, the people beyond these walls. You see, there are two purposes to the fruit God wants us to produce. The first is an offering to the Lord, and the second is a blessing to the people around us. It's the kind of fruit he calls us to produce. And so church, let me ask you again, out there, beyond these walls, are you a producer or a consumer of God's kingdom blessings. You see, if we truly want in on the kingdom that, that Jesus came announcing, we need a metanoia. We need this all-encompassing repentance for both our past actions and our present inaction with a view of a flourishing future. This complete transformation of who we are into the image of who God is because God wants us to be producers for his kingdom on earth, just as it is in heaven. And so the final question really is, is how do we do it? <laughs> what does it look like? How, how do we metanoia? How do we repent, not only from our actions, because I, I submit to you that, that we kind of know those are tracks we've, we've trod, but, but how do we repent of our inactions? Well, the parable, I think, points us toward an answer. It's in verse 8. We need to ask Jesus to apply the fertilizer of his Holy Spirit to our life. You see, true metanoia isn't something that we do on our own effort. We can't do it on our own. It doesn't work that way. In the parable, renewal doesn't come from the tree. Rather, it comes through the one who tends it. Being transformed into God's image isn't something that a fruitless, fallen human being like me can do on my own strength, and neither can you. Rather, we need to turn our inaction over to God, who has the power to make dead things grow. And then we need to ask Jesus to strengthen and empower us today 
And then when we get out of bed tomorrow, we can live a different life than the day before in his power and in his strength, producing fruit for God's glory and for the blessing of the world that Jesus came to save. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I think I, I speak for, for many hearts in this room. We don't want to waste our years spending them on the wrong kinds of things. We want to be a church that follows you that actually makes a difference in people's lives. We want to be a people who, who are part of this beautiful, redemptive, life-giving, flourishing kingdom that you came announcing and you established through your death and resurrection. Jesus, we want in. <laughs> but Jesus, we confess that at times we've done things we ought not to have done, and there are times when we have left the things that we should have done undone. So Jesus, we metanoia. And we ask humbly that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts that you'd fertilize the soil of our life so that we might become the people you've dreamed us to be. Not because of our own effort, but because of our willingness. Not on our own strength, but because of your Holy Spirit's empowerment. And so, Jesus, we pray that you'd have your way in us and you'd make us the church in every sense of the word. We will follow you, Jesus, as you speak. May the fruit we bear be for your glory and the blessing of the people in the city. Amen.